You are listening to Best Life After Cancer, episode number 63. This week, you're going to hear Natasha's story. She was an amazing and lovely young woman, and I had so much fun doing this podcast with her. I know you're going to love it. Enjoy. Welcome to Best Life After Cancer. I'm so glad you're here. This is the podcast where cancer survivors and caregivers can get solutions and support to overcome the life challenges brought by their cancer diagnosis. If you are ready to release your fear, regain your joy, and reduce your risk, you're in the right place. I'm your host, Dr. Deborah Blitzbach. My friends, I am so excited. Today we have Natasha with us. And she's going to share her story. So Natasha, tell us where you are, where you've come from and how you got here. So my name is Natasha and I have a husband. I have a two-year-old daughter named Sierra Rose. And I guess the beginning of it started with me about 2015. We were going through a lot of infertility struggles at the time. We had a lot of treatments done, including IUIs and IVFs. And my daughter was born via IVF in April of 2019. And things started to go wrong during the pregnancy. And shortly after I gave birth, that's where everything kind of started to unravel. Essentially, I hemorrhaged so much during the birth. And Essentially, no answers were were given to why it happened, and I just kept bleeding for months and months, six months in total. And I went back to the doctors a couple of times, and they said, you know what, we're going to do ultrasounds, we're going to check what's going on. And I saw three doctors during those months following the birth, and nothing was conclusive. So... I knew something was wrong. There's that gut instinct that we have. And I just knew something was off. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. I know that a lot of women bleed postpartum, but I was expecting only a couple of weeks, maybe at most a month. And it happened for so long and it was very, very heavy. And I said to myself, no, you know what? Let me go find another gynecologist, like a brand new one. And it just so happened that one of the moms on one of my Facebook groups, she actually got me in on Labor Day weekend, Saturday morning, which is unheard of, you know, (laughs) it's insane. First appointment of the day, she saw me and as soon as she looked, she said, I think something's going on here, which to me was very surprising because I had seen a couple of doctors beforehand and they said, you know, everything looks okay. They actually didn't do any internal exams. They did ultrasounds, but everything looked normal. So when she said that, I was concerned. And she said, I think you're going to need to go get a colposcopy, which is a punch biopsy of your cervix. And you're also going to have to get a hysteroscopy, which is an exam of your uterus, a a Mm -hmm. video camera essentially is going to go inside and and check it out. So I was a little freaked out (laughs) to hear any of this. And what happened after that is I kind of didn't necessarily go right away and and get a colposcopy. I kind of waited 
waited it out. My symptoms had actually subsided. I wasn't bleeding anymore. But I also had another gynecologist that I went to go see for a second opinion. And she also, as soon as she took a look, she said, I have never seen anything like this before. This looks like it's trabeculated. So she was describing it and she said, you know what, I think it's a good idea. You should go get that colposcopy. I still waited a little bit after that. And I, I regret it so much because looking back, those are months that I could have been in treatment earlier, potentially. So what happened is I did go get that colposcopy. This is like another doctor that I had seen. So at this point, I had seen six doctors oh my goodness. at that point. And this doctor, she was also a gynecologist, and she specialized in colposcopies. And as soon as she saw it, once again, I heard, I have never seen anything like this. To me, which is surprising, I live in a pretty big city. I'm from Montreal. I'm going to tier one super hospitals here. And for multiple doctors to say that they hadn't seen this was kind of very concerning and alarming Mm -hmm. because I said, what is going on? The biopsy actually came back as AIS, which is precancer. So it's adenocarcinoma in situ. And I said, okay, that's good. It's not cancer. She called me back a week later and she said, you know what, it is AIS, but I need you to come in right away. I need to speak to you. So I brought my husband. I had the baby with me because I was breastfeeding at the time and she was just, you know, going through acid reflux. (laughs) Just uh, she's a very difficult baby. So I brought her with me and the doctor sat me down and she said, look, it's adenocarcinoma in situ, but I really want to do what's called a leap procedure. It's going to take 15 to 20 minutes. It's right here right now, but it might be too fast for you. So you can go talk it over with your husband and let me know what you decide. Go take a walk. And I kind of hummed and hawed and I said, oh, I don't know. What do I do? I, I don't really know. My baby's here. She's crying. But this doctor was was amazing. She really kind of put a sense of urgency in her speech and talked me through it. And she said, I really do think that you should do it now. You know, if we we do it, we can get more answers and and see what it is. If it's nothing, it's nothing. But if it's something I'd rather we take care of it sooner rather than later. Thankfully, I did, because I believe a week later, I was diagnosed with stage 2b adenocarcinoma of the cervix and essentially I had my baby with me my husband with me and I was transferred to another hospital at this point so this is another (laughs) doctor but it was an oncologist who specializes in gynae oncology so he sat me down and his first words to me were I'm sorry Natasha you you have cancer and you won't be able to have any more kids. And I didn't cry. I I think I knew what was coming for a long time. It's the processing that took a long time for me. I still sometimes to this day don't really believe what has happened. You know, getting that news was uh, was a big blow, but I actually almost I was relieved essentially. Mm-hmm. I was relieved because for so many months since April when I gave birth 
I had no idea what was going on with the bleeding. My symptoms, in fact, had changed after the bleeding stopped. I know it's a lot of information, but I think a lot of women need to hear this because I'm the type of person who does a lot of research. It's part of my job, my career. And I had no idea. I know a lot about biology and I know how things work. And I had never heard this before. So the bleeding had stopped, but it actually changed to a watery discharge, like Mm -hmm. cups of water. And at the time when I was going through it, between September and November, I thought it was normal. I thought it was just going to go away. And it's so hard when you've just had a baby because you've never had a baby before. Yeah. And you don't know what's coming afterwards. I figured and, it was normal. And, maybe. You know, so many women don't talk about that. And, you yeah. know, a lot of people after they have a baby, they have some urinary incontinence. Exactly. And, you know, all of a sudden you've got a lot of watery discharge. You're like, you know, is this, you know, vaginal discharge? Am I having some urinary incontinence? Exactly. I totally can understand why you were exactly unsure so at that point. I had, I had no idea. And it's only now that I'm seeing a lot of women's health. Hey, look at the red flags. If you're bleeding between periods, if there's any pain during intercourse on Instagram, you have all these great posts about what to watch out for. I had never, ever seen anything about watery discharge, I swear, because had I known, I would have rushed to my doctor sooner and faster. One of the things I look back and I I constantly say to myself, like, I could have caught this sooner. But at the same time, in your podcast, you try to reframe everything, right? right? Your story, and your perspective. And I keep thinking about, okay, well, how do I look at the last year and a half that has just gone by. You know what? At the end of the day, I am very happy that I kept going. I I went and I sought out more doctors because I felt something was wrong. I knew something was wrong. And if I hadn't done it, I I don't know if I'd be here today. I right. don't know I want to point that out for people. You know, <laughs> this is really important. We know our bodies. And if you have a sense that something isn't right, you know, even if someone tells you it's fine, it's really, I think it's good practice to really continue until you feel satisfied that nothing is wrong. It's so important. So thank you so much for sharing that. It's really, really important. And somebody was talking to me from the inside. I swear, I don't know what it was. Somebody was looking up like from above. Maybe it was my grandmother. Uh, she, she actually had uterine cancer. I just feel like there were angels up above looking at me and saying, go, go get this figured out and go ask for another opinion. And even after the first doctor that said, you know what, you should go get a colposcopy, I still went and got another opinion mm-hmm. just to make myself feel better. I'm not sure why I waited so long, to be honest, but I think it was the fear of figuring out also what was wrong to, right. to hear those words that you, you do have cancer. That I don't know crazy. that we asked at the beginning, how old are you? I'm 36. I had to okay. think about that. My memory. Is so bad. <laughs> I just turned 36, actually. And so you were like, what, 30? Three I was when you were doing- 30. I was 34, I believe. Okay. Yeah. I was diagnosed in December of 2019 on Friday the 13th as well. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. 
I'm not usually superstitious, but it was kind of interesting that it would happen on that day. So yeah, I was 34. Okay. Yeah. I think that's part of it too, is, you know, no one really expects that they're going to get diagnosed with cancer at 34. Yeah. You know, you may know something's wrong, but that's not the first thing that most people think is what's wrong. Exactly. And the other thing about cervical cancer that I found out after the fact is that there's a little bit of a stigma associated with it. I've been with my husband since 2007. So it's going to be our 10 year wedding anniversary in December. And it's only once I started seeing a lot more posts about cervical cancer and and the awareness campaigns that there actually was a stigma surrounding it oh, those girls, they go out and, you know, they have sex with multiple, multiple partners, which is fine, but, you know, like, (laughs) but not always true. Exactly. So, or that somebody cheated and there's all these things that I kept reading and I said, no, me and my husband are so happy together and we've been together for so long and we have a beautiful relationship. I, I really feel that he's been my rock throughout everything. There is a stigma. And I think that it's because many of these are HPV related. And so the fact that there's a virus, people assume things about how you got that virus. And I think that what people need to remember is you can get that virus the very first time you have sex with anyone else. And so unless both of you are going into your marriage virgins, which let's just be honest, most people aren't in this day and age, then you can't be casting stones. This is not something that you have to be careless. This is something that there's no outward signs of this. And the other thing that I wanted to point out is that I had normal pap smears for the last 10 years thing is wow yeah 10 years of normal pap smears and on top of it going through the fertility treatments since 2015 that's when we started to try to have a baby I had gone into the doctors and they had done multiple pap smears before doing IVF so many people were up there in my cervix and I'm surprised that it, it wasn't seen before but apparently my doctor said that it it probably grew very fast during the pregnancy. Even though, you know, it's not estrogen driven for my case, I don't know the scientific background about that, but they do suspect that the the pregnancy is is what... um, When we have pregnancy, our immune systems are purposefully suppressed a bit to help with some of the rejection issues that can come with, you know, small amounts of transference through the Mm -hmm. placenta, we know you can find the baby's DNA floating in the mother's bloodstream at that point. And so our immune system is purposely like tamped down a little bit to try and make it so that everything, you know, works with pregnancy. And so sometimes, you know, we'll see some weird cervical cancers. Sometimes we'll see some really aggressive breast cancers come out of pregnancy. I don't have proof, but I think sometimes It's that your immune system just isn't working quite as well as it sometimes is. Okay. I am HPV 16. 
I did get tested by one of the gynecologists. And I do know that I have had it for a long time. I was part of a study back in university. At McGill University, they were doing tests called the HITCH study, and they were studying HPV within couples. They contacted me a couple years after the fact and said, you need to get more pap tests on a regular basis because you have tested for a high-risk oncogenic type. I actually still have that paper from 2011. And I think that's also what kept me going to see more doctors and mm-hmm. pushing because there was this little thing in the back of my head that was saying, maybe it's related to the HPV, like maybe there's something there. And and lo and behold, the HPV 16, they say that it is probably the reason yeah. you know, why cervical cancer. So once you were diagnosed, how did they treat you? So they sent me for PET scans on the 23rd and 24th of December, right in the middle of, you know, the whole Christmas uh, <laughs> holiday thing. I went in and I started my treatments uh, January 29th with chemo, radiation, and brachytherapy. So I had five chemos and 25 radiation treatments mm-hmm. and three internal brachytherapies. And it was very interesting because the first chemo session I had, I went, I had a code blue. I went into anaphylactic shock. Oh my and gosh. Was sent straight to the ER. It was a scene out of Grey's Anatomy and it's almost like it was an out of body experience because there I was, you know, I love Grey's Anatomy and I love that whole thing. So I'm there, <laughs> you know, going through everything, the nausea, everything was happening so fast. And I could see all these doctors running in. It's almost like I wanted to keep watching, but it was, it was me that was going through everything. In the end, I was treated with carboplatin instead of okay. And then everything after that went more smoothly. One of the things that I think a lot of people don't realize for all the young people who have cervical cancer, the chemotherapy and radiation are given together. And when you're radiating the pelvis, it comes with a lot of side effects like diarrhea and urinary Mm -hmm. issues, and sometimes some nausea, depending on how far up the radiation field has to come the radiation is really significantly tougher. And the brachytherapy that you were talking about is an internal treatment that involves a rod that is placed through the cervix into the uterus with two little balls on sticks that go on either side of this. And all of this has to get put up inside. Yeah. And usually you're sedated well, but not completely out. Correct. Yeah. It is not a whole heck of a lot of fun. It is not. Those were long days. They were from seven o'clock in the morning and I had to stay till 6 p.m. some days because they had to make sure that you're not bleeding anymore and that you could go to the bathroom. But you go in, you are waiting for a couple hours and then you go into the surgery room, get the rods placed in. You then cannot move. You're on your back for another couple of hours for the actual treatment. And by then you know, it's already three o'clock in the afternoon. So it's a long day. It's a very, very long day. And it's a lot of discomfort because, you know, there are things being placed and then things being removed. And yeah, it's not, it's not easy treatment. And so I think that so many people like don't really understand how much goes into treating cervical cancer. It's, you know, it's a rough, it's a rough exactly. one. And, you know, it, there's a lot of other factors too. 
with my husband in terms of like trying to find a way to be together again. How do we go from here? Just so everyone out there kind of understands is after radiation for cervical cancer, there's a thing called vaginal stenosis, which you really want to prevent because you need to get those internal exams and they advise you that you have to use a dilator, basically like a dildo. (laughs) (laughs) Without all the functionality. Without all the functionality. And so you really have to make sure that you continue that so that it, it doesn't cause vaginal stenosis and for the vaginal walls to close up. Right. So that's been quite interesting. And to be honest, I've been very fearful of being intimate with my husband because there's been a lot of trauma down there going stemming all the way back from the the infertility treatments, just everything. There's a lot of action that's been going on down there, medically speaking, that it's a, a trigger point for me. Yeah. And so I'm trying to work through it with a psychologist to try and move forward and get that part of my life back again. But it's very, very challenging, I have to say. You're in a big city. I would talk to your hospital system and see if they have pelvic physical therapy. Oh, you're in Canada. It's a little bit different than the U.S. system, but there are places that have pelvic physical therapy where they do internal manipulations to help break up the scar tissue and to sort of help to make it so that things are stretched out well enough that you can try to have sex without it being painful. Because that's the real problem here is that if you start having sex again and it hurts the first three times, you're never going to want to do it again because sex is supposed to bring us pleasure. And if all it's bringing is pain, it does not take very long before we get to a point where we're really not loving things going on down there. There's just a lot going on down there. Right. The birth of my child, you know, I had mentioned earlier in the podcast that I had hemorrhaged Mm -hmm. severely. I had to have a blood transfusion and everything. And so what happened is when I was recovering, I had a couple of doctors having to reach way inside me, like, the most excruciating pain I've ever felt. And it's still with me. Like I can still feel myself be there and it's hard to let go. It was, it was extremely painful. So all of these events combined, it's hard to get back to a place of intimacy and not remember everything that's gone on. Yeah. It is not a whole heck of a lot of fun. Did you have any lymph node involvement? They thought I had a lymph node involvement, but they said that it would be in the field of radiation. So they feel that it was taken care of. But the aftermath of the whole treatment, you know, here where I am, they don't do a PET scan at the three-month mark. They only do it if there are any symptoms. And in fact, I did end up having back pain at the four-month post-treatment mark. And so I went in and the PET scan, it lit up a little bit. So this is where they questioned, is there residual disease or is this necrosis? Because they found quite a significant amount during the internal exams. The biopsy came out clear. Okay. So they said, you know what, we're going to follow up in a couple of months. So that was in July. So I had my follow up in October of 2020. And in October, what was weird is that 
the PET scan came back clear, but then the biopsies came back with abnormal, atypical nuclear cells. That, that could was- be from treatment. You know, did they yeah. say that they thought that might be treatment effect? Exactly. They said that, but they couldn't, the pathologist wanted a bigger sample. Mm. And so that's when they said, okay, let's, let's talk about a hysterectomy. And I remember the doctor specifically saying a hysterectomy after radiation and chemo is not ideal. It's, it's, it's bad. Yes, <laughs> it's, it's challenging. Good. It's very challenging because there's challenging. a fair amount of scar tissue. And so it's not as safe exactly. as it is in people who have not had significant amounts of radiation. Exactly. So, you know, at that point, the necrosis was actually getting worse as well. And they said, you know what, let's wait till December. Let's keep an eye on things. Let's do another PET scan. So we did another one. And that one came back clear. The biopsy came back clear. And ever since then, I've been on a a really close follow up schedule. Very stressful, though. I mean, you've got this little tiny daughter. (laughs) And you've got a PET scan that, you know, they can't say 100% one way or the other. I mean, talk about raising a lot of anxiety. That's, oh, it's so hard. It is. And I just had my fifth PET scan, I believe in April, which there was no evidence of disease, no metastasis, which is great. However, they said there's a bit of lighting up but they said it's not of concern. So there are little things like that, that I can never really get a clean, no, everything looks good. (laughs) There's always the, but, but Uh, it's been a very tough year, especially having a toddler. She wasn't in daycare. I've been taking care of her every day. She only started daycare this past week. So it was really, really tough, but I have to say, you know, your podcast really helped me on so many different levels to change my frame of mind, changing the way that you tell your story or think about your story. That really helped. And it's still an exercise that I go through, you know, a couple of times because it's easy to say it a certain way. But if you tweak it a little bit, you find the good things and just a different perspective. It right. can help you calm your fears. I heard you say before that you felt like you wished you had done things quicker, but what really stands out to me with your story is that you were so persistent in understanding that something was wrong and really advocating for yourself yeah. and making this happen and helping figure it out before it was at a point where it wasn't something that could be cured. You know, I think you did a great job. Thank you. Thank you so much. And what I said from the beginning when I first found out is I really want to help other women really trust their gut instincts. And that's why I'm doing this podcast, because if there's anyone out there who at any point in my story has any similarities or any feelings of, oh, something might be wrong, but you know, life's getting in the way, my work's too busy. Oh, I have kids, I'm doing this and that. Go for that pap smear, go get tested for let's say it's HPV, or if something is not normal, try and get to a doctor. Um, Because if that stage 2B had turned into stage 
three A or B and so on and so forth. The prognosis obviously is not as good. Right. The prognosis um, is worse. So that's where I'm at right now. And I decided once again, with the help of your podcast to move, move forward. And today's the present. So this summer, I took it upon myself to write a list of all the things I want to do with her, because we're not guaranteed tomorrow, anything could mm-hmm. happen to me tomorrow. So I really just wanted to make sure that every day this summer, you know, I really thought that going places, going to the beach, all the museums, all the cool things around Montreal. There's so much to do here. So I was really a tourist in my own city. We decided we're not going anywhere. We're going to stay here, stay put and enjoy our city. And every day I'm just taking it day by day, you know, waiting for the next scan, next follow up. But in between, I'm really trying to enjoy all the little things that life has to offer and spend as much time with my family my husband, he, like, I have to give a shout out to him because honestly, I couldn't have done it without him. He's been a rock. He's actually the one that caught the rash when I was going through the code blue before they called it. He was with me every single chemo, taking notes took care of like knowing all the secretary's names, taking down their phone numbers, calling for my appointments, making sure my radiation schedule was figured out. Everything Edmund, I swear every cancer patient needs a cancer buddy that is taking care of all the admin because I could not have done it without him. You don't have the bandwidth. You know, you're in pain, you feel sick, you're tired, you miss things. And the other thing this past year with the post-treatment, I find a lot of people or friends or family who haven't been diagnosed with cancer or go through the treatment. The misconception is that when you're done treatments, the cancer is over. It's almost like, oh, you're done treatments? Okay, you're all good now. No, that's not the case. There is really post-treatment aftercare, follow-ups, complications that may arise. And so... For me, it was a lot of the fatigue. I'm still dealing with a ton of fatigue. And my daughter has a lot to do with that. But I definitely feel it's it's more than just having a toddler. I really feel that the treatments did a number on me. And so my husband has been amazing where he takes the morning shift. He wakes her up, brings her down for breakfast, has let me sleep in for the whole year, goes everywhere with us so that I didn't need to lift her up into the car seat, cook dinner pretty much 99% of the time this whole entire year. And uh, he's just, he's just been amazing. His birthday is on Monday. So. <laughs> oh, he'll, happy he'll birthday, be, uh, husband. Yeah. So he'll be, uh, he'll be 41. You know, I think one of the things that you've gotten out of the podcast is that it's so great to really reframe these things in our life. And so for me with the fertility issues, like there was so many things that just did not go the way you want to them to go when you're having a baby. But one of the things that I've 
always told people was the most amazing blessing as a scientist. For some reason, the day that they were putting my embryos back, because we were both physicians, the doctor was like, Hey, do you want to come in the lab and look at them under the microscope? Oh my goodness. And literally I looked at my son when he was 12 cells. Isn't that amazing? And he grew into a person. I mean, it's incredible. I still talk about my husband still brings that up like almost every other day. Like the fact that she came from those cells, literally it's, it's a miracle. It seriously is a miracle. It really was one of those things in life that like, just, you know, anytime I'm like, Oh, that was so tough. It was so awful. I'm like, but I saw my son when he was 12 cells. 12 cells. <laughs> we do have two embryos left. And, you know, there's always been that talk of even before the cancer about, um, you know, what are we going to do? But now that I really like it's a decision that was essentially made for me. So I just want to bring something to light too that I think is amazing in your life. That's amazing that you have two embryos because you could have a surrogate exactly. carry those babies. Exactly. If you chose to, the fact that you had to have IVF has opened the door for you to have more children after your cancer. How amazing is that? It is amazing. It's almost as if, you know, it happened for a reason. Like it prepped me because what happened is after I got diagnosed, there was no talk about fertility preservation. He really wanted me to go get my chemo done right away. So, And the ovaries are in the radiation field and they don't function after they're radiated. So their fertility preservation is not a realistic option for the majority of people who have cervical cancer. Yeah. So, you know, I think that we, while there are parts of our lives that are going to be dreadfully hard and each and every person on this planet is going to have something in their lifetime that is going to be dreadfully hard. There's always some little things that you can be grateful for during that. Absolutely. And, you know, when you cling on to those things that are the little you know, little breaks in the cloud, that little bit of blue sky, it just really helps to get through all of this and just to stay whole. Yeah. I love your podcast about gratitude. It was, it was awesome. And I really try and practice it all day, every day, as much as I can, because it reframes everything. It shifts your perspective. If you're having a crappy day, you you can just think about all the things that you can be grateful for and it, it, it brightens up your, your day. It's, yeah. um, it's, it's like a medicine. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. So what advice do you have? You've given so much good advice to all the other young women who are going through these sort of things. But if you had to give sort of your best advice, what would it be? Definitely advocate for yourself. That's a big one. Only you know your body. 
and you have to trust your instincts. There's so many times in my life where I've felt the need to keep going, just dig a little bit more or find out a little bit more, whether, you know, it's for my daughter, for medical purposes, always advocate for yourself and try to, if you know something is wrong, you feel something is wrong, try to get more answers until you feel comfortable not going any further. I think that is the most basic, perfect thing that everybody should be doing. And it's true in your treatments as well. You know, I mean, one of the things I tell patients all the time, we are all human. There is a possibility that we will make a mistake. If you're laying there and something doesn't seem right, say, Hey, something seems different today. Something seems like it's not right. The medicine is not the same color that it was the time before. Yeah, absolutely. And it's happened to me so many times, uh, you know, an example, PET scans, the doctor gave me a paper, a requisition and says, said, yeah, come back. Uh, You have to come back in four weeks for a PET scan. So the requisition gets sent, you know, a week goes by, I haven't heard back about the appointment or the scheduling. So I call them and they're like, no, you're only supposed to come back in four months. I said, no, can you check the requisition again? I'm sure it said four weeks. She's like, oh, you're right. It said four weeks. And this was a very important PET scan. So it's little things like that, that, you know, it's good to follow up, make sure that you if you're in treatments, write everything down, write who you spoke to, what was said, because to be honest, my memory is shot right now. I honestly <laughs> can't remember anything, because, but I do because I, I wrote it down. I wrote a whole journal, you know, all the, the things that happened and just even for myself so I can remember my, my journey. But it's also good so that, you know, if you need to look back on something when you're meeting with a doctor, you have the dates, you have all that data, so to speak. And it's very helpful to them, for sure. So yeah. that's another little tidbit is, is write, if you're in treatments, maybe write down or bring a journal with you, and write things down. Honestly, you don't have to keep it in your head, just put it on paper. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, it has been so, so nice to talk with you. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing Likewise. your story. And we just loved hearing it. And I know that there are lots of young women that are in the same position as you and are really going to love hearing this. Thank you so much, Deborah. I appreciate everything that you're doing. And I'm just very grateful to you. You've really helped shift everything for me, my perspective on everything. So you helped me to move forward. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Best Life After Cancer. Did you know you can get more information on my website, bestlifeaftercancer.com? There is also a Facebook page, Best Life After Cancer MD, where there is a group just for survivors. Here you are able to interact with me, ask questions, and get more help. I'd love to see you there. Have a great week, and I'll speak with you soon.